Hi, my name is Sam Williams, and welcome to part two of episode number 109 of my 60 Music Podcast, The Millennial Throwback Machine. So first of all, I'd like to welcome all of you to part two of episode number 109 of my 60 Music Podcast, Millennial Throwback Machine. I'm Sam Williams, and for those of you who are just now discovering this podcast, either on the Apple Podcast app or in Stitcher or in iHeartRadio or Google Play Music or on Spotify, and you're wondering, so what the heck is that? I'm going to give you a brief description of what the show is all about. Okay, so I'm Sam Williams, and I'm a 24-year-old songwriter slash producer, but I'm also a 60 Music fan slash expert slash nerd. And each week of this podcast, I take one song, my one artist in the second split the show in two parts. First part of the show is talking about my opinion of the song and why I think it's so good, or why I think it sucks, and do my own personal analysis on the arrangement of the song, which will include the chords, melody, and lyrics. And the second part of the show dig deep into the history behind that track. In that part of the show, I talk about who wrote the song, who produced it, who are the musicians on the track, whether it be the band members, the studio musicians themselves, and uh, where the song was recorded at, where the history behind the recording studio, and the history behind the writers that wrote the song, who produced it, produced it, the artists that recorded it, and the history behind the label of songs, at least on the name of that label, and where that label is located, and the peak position of the song made up originally the Billboard Hot 100 charts, and the month the song was released. All that is in the second part of the show. Moving on, let's talk about the history behind last week's artist and song, which was Roy Hedge, Treater Wright. But before we get into that, we need to talk about something else that is totally related to the history behind last week's artist and song, which was Roy Hedge, Treater Wright. And actually, um, I'll get into this a little bit later on in the podcast. The original single was actually originally, originally credited to Roy Hedge and the Traits. And the name of the song was Treat It Right. But in, for all intents and purposes, we're just naming the song Treat It Right by Roy Head. But um, before we get into that, let's talk about the history behind a genre of music that I don't know if you necessarily agree with this genre of music. But, you know, I mean, I'm kind of talking about things from more of a historical perspective, you know, because this show is about uh, historical music from the 60s. So... Um, if you don't agree with this genre of music, that's okay. I get it. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, uh, politically incorrectness that we have in our, you know, historical society in America that we're trying to correct right, correct right now, like Black Lives Matter. But for the sake of just talk, speaking, talking about things from a historical perspective, let's talk about Blue Eyed Soul for a minute. Because um, the genre Blue Eyed Soul, if you don't know what it is, it's essentially... Uh, it's, it's an attempt made by white musicians, whether they be Italians or, you know, Jewish guys or whatever. You know, it was an attempt made by white musicians to try to sound black. Um, and there are several examples of this. But when you think of Blue Eyed Soul, there's two very finite categories that belong into this whole subgenre, which is known as Blue Eyed Soul. And those two, those two categories are actual blue-eyed soul, which when you listen to these songs, are a lot of times soulful ballads where you, you know, where there's a lot of sophisticated chord changes happening in the song, and there's a lot of different things going on as far as the arrangement, and it's very dense, it's very emotional, and there's a lot of uh, powerful singing happening. That's blue-eyed soul, but blue-eyed R&B was a little bit different, you know. Blue-eyed R&B, which was basically um, white musicians that 
really tried to get into the heads of those black R&B musicians of the 50s and essentially create music that was very reminiscent of songs that very much had basic chord changes, again, to kind of revolved around 12-bar blues. But again, you know, they're trying to replicate the sound of those black R&B musicians. Everything from the backup vocals to the horns, everything was sort of relic among those, those R&B songs, which is essentially rhythm and blues. And, uh, you know... Songs that fall into the blue-eyed soul category include songs by group artists like the Righteous Brothers, and uh, you know um, the the you know the Rascals, and then there was blue-eyed R&B, which you know groups like Mitch Wright and the Detroit Wheels were really really good at, and then you had this artist, which was Roy Head, and uh, you know who actually, if you think about it, if you if you don't really know too much about this guy, the one thing I want you to remember about him is that he was probably one of the biggest blue-eyed R&B singers of the 60s, but everything about him was so James Brown and so Joe Tex in the sense that he had some of the craziest dance moves you could ever see any white musician do. You know, I mean, he had dance moves that rivaled Elvis back in the 50s, and really, you know, his dance moves were so crazy and so out there that, you know, basically it was he was trying to channel the same energy that performers in the 50s like Elvis and Jackie Wilson had. You know, he basically had those, he just just went all over the place when you saw him perform live. You know, especially if you watch clips of him from back in the day when he, when he, when he actually sang and did all those crazy moves, you're like, wow, this guy is definitely getting those black, mo- he's getting, getting, the, getting the mojo from those black musicians pretty hard on a lot, of, and especially when you saw him live, but also with his vocal performances too. Um, but I mean, Blue Eyed Soul was really not a new thing specifically because, you know, dating back to the 50s with, you know, the fact that, you know, AM stations, white AM stations wouldn't play songs by black musicians. So a lot of times they had artists like Elvis Presley and the Crew Cuts record songs by black musicians in order for them to get play on white AM radio. And, this, and that was actually really true. This happened quite a lot. And one thing I want you to keep in mind about Blue-Eyed Soul is that there was always a black counterpart to it because especially during the 50s and 60s with so much, uh, you know, uh, racial injustice happening at that time, you know, it was it was hard for black sounding music, you know, that sounded very southern to get on top 40 radio in the late 50s and early 60s, you know, it, you know, and, and this kind of changed quite a lot, but um, and with that being said, you know, in order for black musicians to really get play on uh, AM radio in the late 50s and early 60s, they they did their honest to God best to try to sound white. And this was true for groups like Nat, for artists like Nat King Cole and even Sam Cooke and even, you know, like the Platters and some other and some other artists like Gene McDaniels and even Johnny Mathis, too. I mean, those were all black musicians that did their did their darn best to try to sound as white as they possibly could. So that way they can get played on uh, on AM radio in the late 50s and early 60s. I mean, it's just it's just the truth. I mean, and it, you know, it took a while for the AM stations to really be in of acceptance of, you know, really black sounding music, you know, stuff that was coming from the South. But eventually they did. And uh also, you know, that whole, when Blue-Eyed, you know, here's the, thing, the other thing. So, you know, Blue-Eyed Soul wasn't just a 50s and 60s genre of music. Um, you know, this idea of white musicians trying to cover songs, 
you know, you know, or at least try to write original music that sounded very, very black, or they try to capture the essence of black singers and musicians. I mean, this continued into the seventies. I mean, look, Hollow Notes. I mean, he Hollow Notes were a huge example of blue eyed soul in the seventies. And even, you know, even you know, even groups like Bob Seeger, I mean, that 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 art that his artistry within itself was totally based around him trying to sound black, even though he was white, you know. And uh, I mean, there's just hundreds of examples. I mean, one of the most biggest adult contemporary hits ever that ever you know, ever made the adult contemporary charts, you know, back when it was slightly starting to become more hip and it wasn't like you're you know, middle of the road, Dean Martin, Frank Sinatra music, you know, that was plagued, you know, on the adult contemporary charts in the 60s. And, you know, one of the biggest hit songs, that whole genre of music was, again, a great example of Blue Eyed Soul song. It was What We Won't Do For Love by Bobby Caldwell. I mean, it's basically, you know, I think it's actually called What You Won't Do For Love. But anyways, when you listen to that song, you, you notice that the singer of that song sounds so black and you're like, wow, I can't believe he's white. And that's just a great example of blue-eyed soul. You know, it was basically white musicians that did their very best to sound black. And a lot of times, the crazy part about listening about some of these records is that you can't tell a difference. I mean, they literally sound black. And they don't really have that white sound. But again, it kind of went both ways because there were a lot of, you know, white black musicians that try to sound white, like Nat King Cole and even like the Drifters and the Supremes and even like the Fifth Dimension, too. I mean, you know, and Gene McDaniels and Johnny Mathis. I mean, those are all really great examples of black musicians that really did their best to sound white. So that way they can get accepted onto the white AM radio stations in the late 50s and early 60s and even in the mid 60s, too. But. I mean, that's, you know, I mean, you could you could argue that Barry Gordy, you know, actually was doing his best to try to make black music sound as white as he possibly could. So that way it can get played on, uh, you know, both the white and, and black AM radio stations. But, you know, essentially what happened was that, you know, when the Billboard Hot 100 chart was created, there was really everything had to get played. I mean, that's that was really the first time you really heard everything all across the spectrum getting played on a you know am radio regardless if it was black sounding music or white sounding music but that's your just your basic introduction to blue-eyed soul now let's talk about the history behind roy head and let's talk about the texas music scene for a second too okay so before we hop into the history behind uh roy head the traits let's talk about the texas music scene for a second because Texas was not New York, it wasn't Nashville, it wasn't Los Angeles, it wasn't Detroit, it wasn't Chicago, um, it wasn't any of those other cities as far as it being compared as, as far as a music scene was concerned. Because, um, you know, yes, it was based in the South, but what at the time when Nashville was starting to try to really sophisticate itself and trying to create more uptown sounding music with strings and you know, and backup singers and very sophisticated country songs. Um, Texas on was the polar opposite of that. Um, Texas music was at the time was very down home and very uh, gothic and very southern. Um, I mean, almost kind of compared to the music coming out of New Orleans at the time, because New Orleans also had very gothic, southern sounding music too. But um, you know, when I think of the Texas music scene in the '60s. I often think of two very specific uh, scenes that went that were very popular at the time. Uh, the one scene, you know, which was based in 
you know, Fort Worth, Texas, which is where Major Bill Smith was working out of, uh, that scene consisted of two very big hits, which actually sounded kind of poppy for its time. And I've done one of them before on my podcast. Um, that scene, you know, can, you had Major Bill Smith as a producer and a lot of a lot of records being released on the cam first before being, pick, before being picked up by Smash Records. And those records included Hey Baby by Bruce Chanel and Hey Paul by Paul and Paula. Actually, I think it was Hey Paula by Paul and by Paula. Um, but yeah, um, again, those those records sounded pretty poppy for... Uh, Texas, but again, you know they, you know, since they were recorded in Texas at the very small recording studio, Clifford Herring Studios in Fort Worth, Texas, they didn't really have the polish or the sophisticated sound that a lot of records that were coming out of Nashville had at that time, because it was probably just a basic recorded in a basic two or three track. And that's kind of what you will hear in a lot of records recorded in Texas is they didn't have a very polished sound. Some of them were very, very just raw and gritty and just not very sophisticated at all. And uh, and this is also true for a lot of the records being recorded in, you know, Houston, actually. And Houston was was kind of interesting because it wasn't necessarily all country music. It was actually a mix of blues and R&B. And uh, Houston, this specific scene where this song came out of, uh, you had black artists like Bobby Blue Blam, you know, recording there. And he was doing very much hard edge, uh, you know, blues and R&B. And then you also had some of the more garage rock bands who are taking a lot of those blues R&B influences and creating their own sort of whitewashed version of those things. And, you know, that could be said for a band called the Douglas Quintet and this group Roy Head in the Traits. Um, and that's basically what the, the, the that really what is really what encompassed the scene in Texas at the time. It was more the, the more the poppy stuff which came out of that fourth word Texas scene with Major Bill Smith producing those records, you know, with Hey Baby and Hey Paula by Paul and Paula. And then you also had some of the more blues R&B stuff coming out of Houston. And this was so true for, you know, especially for records like Funny How Time Pips Away by Joe Hinnon which had that total blues R&B sound to it. You know, very, very black. And if you think about it, Roy Head was kind of the white version of that. And uh, and same thing with uh, Sir Douglas Quintet. Sir Douglas Quintet also had a blue-eyed soul sound because uh, Doug Somm, who was the producer, who was the, who was the head of the, the group, he basically had that Ray Charles, you know, very black sound to his voice too. So he had a blue-eyed soul sound as well. And... It, there's one more specific scene that went down in Texas, you know, aside from those two scenes I just mentioned, and that was in Tyler, Texas. Now, in Tyler, Texas, there was a studio which became a popular destination for a lot of garage rock bands to record at, and some pretty some pretty sophisticated garage rock records were recorded there, and they really fall more into the white garage rock sound, you know, with, which literally, I mean, the quintessential example of this is the Five Americans, because when you listen to those records, they literally, the band sounds like they recorded them in the garage, where they were basically been rehearsing in the garage forever, and that's what you get with a lot of those specific records, and even like John Fred and his Playboy band, which actually, you know, they actually recorded some decent records in Robin Hood Studios, which is in Tyler, Texas. But again, that's a totally different scene. But today we're going to be focusing on the Houston scene 
uh, with Roy Head and, uh, you know, specifically, uh, you know, that whole scene with Backbeat Records and how they actually kind of got signed to Scepter first before they were on Backbeat. But we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, but yeah, so um, there there are some interesting things about the circumstances in which the time which the song was originally released when it made up the charts. But I'll talk about that more with you in a minute. But now let's really get into the history behind Roy Head and the Traits and Treater Wright. Okay, so let's talk about the history behind Roy Head and the Traits Treater Wright. Because if there's anything I want you to remember about this group is that there was the you know the the problem with this band is that there was always friction happening between. Roy Head and the rest of the band because just how different they were as far as their places in life was concerned because um, Roy Head was originally from Three Rivers, Texas and he, and he actually joined the traits uh, when he when he moved to San Marcos and basically the traits got their got managed to get, got a record deal with TNT Music which was based in San Antonio and all the members of the band were essentially still in high school and Basically, you know, the band was essentially your white rhythm and blues band. They recorded a bunch of rockabilly and rhythm and blues songs and, and some country songs, too. But it was mostly uh, rhythm and blues songs. And, uh, you know, just an FYI, you know, Roy Head's Treat It Right was the only really major hit for Roy Head. He had a couple smaller hits after that, but he mainly that was the only major hit on the pop charts. But, uh, you know, he actually did have a string of hits on the country and western charts, but that wasn't until... A lot later. So when Roy had moved to San Marcos in 1955, 1955 uh, you know, he, you know, joined the traits along with another guy who was from San Marcos named Tommy Bolton. And at the time, you know, all the original uh, Roy Head and the traits, um, you know, band was essentially still in high school. And, uh, you know, basically, and this was this was the moniker they would go by, you know, for nine years after they formed in 1957. And the band consisted of Roy Head on lead vocals, Tommy Bolton on rhythm guitar, Jerry Gibson on drums, Dan Bouya on piano, Claude Casey on lead guitar, and Bill Pennington on bass. And uh, Causey actually, I think his actually his name was Clyde Causey. Uh, Clyde Causey was, after he joined the military, he got replaced by George Fraser. And essentially, they got signed to the TNT record label, which was owned by Bob Tanner and located in San Antonio. And again, they had some regional hits for the TMT label, including One More Time and Live It Up and Summertime Love. But again, these were all regional hits. They actually garnered a pretty big reputation as one of the biggest, most well-renowned Texas-based bands that could do con that could that could just do regular concerts and sock hops and college and university and dance hall, you know, shows through Texas. And actually, it's funny because since they were since they were all in high school and their parents are still basically controlling their lives, uh, their parents actually turned down uh, a, an opportunity that they had to actually uh, play uh, at for Dix Clark's American Bandstand and go up to Philadelphia and basically lip sync some of their local Texas records over there and uh, in Philadelphia. And in 61 and 62, uh, you know, with that lineup, they added saxophonists David McCumber and Danny Gomez in lineup. And actually, they, uh, they, they, they continue to have more regional hits in Texas, on this time on the Runner record label, which was owned by Jesse Snyder in San Antonio. And the Renner label was actually a subsidiary of United Artists, and they actually uh, the, some of the some of the regional hits they had on this label included their version of Ray Sharp's Linda Lou and Little Mama, an original song written by Dan Bowie and Roy Head as the B side, 
And then they also released the traits version of Got My Mojo working in Woo Woo. And check this out. So all these songs that were they were recording on the Renner label were recording were recorded at Jeff Smith's Texas Sound Studio in San Antonio for the Renner label. And then what happened is that Johnny Clark and Frank Miller actually replaced both George Fraser and Tommy Bolton as lead and rhythm guitar players in the band, respectively. But essentially, those two guys later came in and replaced both of those members of the band um, after they both left. And just a quick little FYI, short, around this time, uh, the musicians who were in the traits realized that this really wasn't a stable career for a lot of them. Uh, they realized that, you know, if they if they can get like one hit song, they could probably be better off. But even just one hit song wasn't going to be enough for them to pay their bills. And they really needed to just think about other things they could do other than music. So that way they could survive. And with that being said, a lot of the musicians that were in the traits, even even before they had the first hit, they quit even before Treat or Write actually became a hit song. A lot of the musicians actually went to school and pursued other careers, other things besides music, like Tommy Bolton, who was in the traits. Basically, uh, you know, he became uh, he be- he pursued a career in the Department of the Treasury in Texas, along uh, with Claude with Clyde Causey. They both uh, pursued careers in that. And Danny Gomez uh, actually got a, got a degree at TSU. And he got his doctorate in, at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. And Dan, David McCumber actually um, actually wanted went went on to uh, pursue real estate in Austin, Texas. And then basically, at, he he ran that company until he retired. And actually, you know, uh, you know, until until he died from melanomas, you know, skin cancer. And George Fraser would pers- actually pursue real estate interests. And Bill Pennington would basically uh, he 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 became uh, just like his mom uh, a successful owner of a funeral home in San Marcos, Texas. And basically, the only two people that would you know basically continue on with uh, you know with both uh, that were in the traits were Roy Head and Johnny Gibson. You know they were the only two people in the band. That would uh, actually Jerry Gibson. Sorry, his name was Jerry Gibson. But anyways, the the only two people in the band that would pursue music, you know, uh, you know, at the time that just didn't get that gave didn't give up were Roy Head and Jerry Gibson. And basically, um, you know, within this time, they uh, they essentially got uh, they, they got signed to Scepter Records in 1964. And this is when things really started to get big. Um, because what happened was that, you know, when they, when they got signed to Scepter Records in 64, which was, by the way, the same label that the Shirelles were on, and they were just starting to, you know, lose steam, uh, Gene Kurtz actually replaced Pennington on bass, and Kenny Williams had replaced Johnny Clark on guitar, and Ronnie Barden's trumpet was added to the mix, and backup singer Sarah Fulcher started performing with the group. And this is when they really started to started to get, get, gather up steam, with, and they released a vinyl 45 featuring the vocals of both Head and Fulcher on the Lori label, Get Back, I don't think it's the same song, but the Beatles, and Never Make Me Blue. And this is when things really started to... Things things started to pick up steam for the band, and this is when it started to get interesting, you know. And basically, um, 
after you know when, once all those members left, uh, the the songwriting talents of of, of the original traits during the first five years of more of a regional regional level were basically being watched by Miss Miss Edra Pennington, Doctor T R Bowie, and they would lay the lay the groundwork for what basically what was going to happen for the group over the, for the next for the group's last four years. Okay, so basically how the song Treater Right was born, it was basically went down like this. Um, Roy Head uh, had this stupid song in his head when he was growing up in Texas as a country boy. Uh, it was called Talking About a Cow. And the cow was basically this humorous song about all the attributes of a milk cow. And essentially what happened was that it, the, the song had a really cool rhythm and it was, you know, and it was really good for dancers at shows. But he, he recognized it was a stupid song. But one day, his bass player, who co-wrote the song with him, Gene Kurtz, basically went to him and said, Hey, Roy, why don't we rewrite this song and make it about a woman instead? And, and basically, that is what happened with the song. Is that they, wrote, they rewrote this stupid song that was originally about a milk cow, and, and they decided to call it Treat Her Right instead. And then essentially, that's how the song went. Uh, that's that's how the song was born, and uh, when this happened, they hooked up with a producer named Huey Mo. Now, if you don't know who Huey Mo is, Huey Mo was a was basically his nickname was a crazy Cajun because he was originally from Louisiana and he grew up in that area, and so I think you know he had some you know connections with you know some of the some of the Cajun people in Louisiana, but. Essentially, you know, he was known for, you know, being one of the most well, well-renowned producers in Louisiana at the time. And he would also make frequent trips back to Texas to produce for acts, you know, like, you know, for example, the Sir Douglas Quintet and Roy Head in the Traits. Now, here's the thing. Um, Huey Moe's reputation as a producer was kind of, he was kind of like the Southern Phil Spector. He was kind of nuts. And like Phil Spector, he actually got into some legal trouble when he was older, uh, you know, much later on in his life, just like Phil Spector, but for different reasons. Uh, Huey Moe actually got busted for having hundreds and hundreds of tapes and pictures of basically nude kids and kids having sex. So he was basically uh, went to jail for basically for child pornography and for, uh, you know, sex, sexual assault with kids. And yeah, that's kind of what happened with him. But he was, again, like a lot like one of those Phil Spector types who was kind of crazy, if you think about it. Um, but yeah, so he produced uh, Roy Head's Treater Right, and it was recorded at a studio, which, you know, it was, again, it was a very big studio in Houston called Gold Star Studios. This wasn't the Gold Star Studios in Los Angeles. It actually was It was actually this different, different, completely different studio under the same name. Actually, it was recorded there, and uh, just check this out. So the the Roy Head and the Trace they are playing on the record because I don't think Huey Mo really used studio musicians for any of the bands that he produced. But the musicians on the song were Johnny Clark on lead guitar, Frank Miller on rhythm guitar, Gene Kurtz on bass, Dan Bowie on keyboards, Danny Gomez and Tommy May on tenor sax, and Johnny Gibson on trumpet and Jerry Gibson on drums. And essentially, that was the lineup on the original record for Treater Right. 
And uh, I'm not really sure exactly if it was recorded on two track or three track or if it was all done live. But knowing Texas, I mean, Texas was really behind everyone else as far as recording technology. So I'm, I would assume that this was probably all done live and maybe like two or three takes because that's kind of what it sounds like too when you listen to that song it sounds like it was all recorded live in like two or three takes maybe even one you know but that's basically what it sounds like but yeah it was recorded there at a a, and by the way i think what happened with uh, that studio is that they they changed their name from gold star studios and sugar hill recording studios probably because they were kind of scared of getting sued by that other gold star studios for using their exact same name um you know which is based in los angeles um, other hits that come out in this studio include She's About a Mover by the Sir Douglas Quintet and Funny How Time Slips Away by Joe Hinton and Bobby Boo Bland's Turn On Your Love Light and most of his hit songs like There, there Ain't Nothing You Can Do and some of his other hits too. But basically, that's what that's where this song is recorded. So actually, this is a quick little funny note before I uh, move on with, uh, you know, talk about sort of the interesting things that happen within the release of the song is that uh, they, you know, they... Uh, Roy had wrote the song with Gene Kurtz when he was at this uh, joint East Bernard, Texas. And basically, uh, he went into the bathroom and wrote the song in about 10 minutes on some toilet paper. I mean, yeah, that's where the song was written. It was written in the bathroom at a joint East Bernard, Texas. Now, that's pretty cool. But anyways, um, so the song was released on the Backbeat record label. Now, if you don't know anything about the Backbeat record label, it was essentially... Uh, a label that was owned by a guy named Don Roby. And Don Roby owned a label in Houston called Duke Records. Now, the Backbeat label was pre- was it was a pretty good independent label for a while because they did have some pretty big hits with both this song and also Tell Me Bye by my Norman Fox and Rob Boys, which I believe got credit got covered note for note by the Belmonts. I'm not even joking. Like the Belmonts, which was Dion's group, you know, that he was in for a while, actually covered Tell Me Why by Norman Fox and Rob Boys and covered it note for note. It's so true. And also they had a huge hit and actually as going going further into in into the decade, actually so they had a huge hit going as late as 1974 with Everlasting Love by Carl Carlton, and that was in 1974, actually. So that was that that was pretty late, actually, for you know an independent label, ba- you know, based in Texas, and that had that had most of their hits in the 60s. Well, they actually had a huge hit in the 70s, and that was one of their biggest hits in the 70s. And uh, essentially, what happened with them. And this is what happened a lot of independent labels too. Um, their catalog got bought out by ABC Records, and ABC Records basically, uh, you know, made the label basically become defunct, and they and they essentially took over, uh, you know, for their catalog, and you know, basically all the contracts for all the artists signed to Backbeat actually went over to ABC Records, which, you know, also had Dunhill and Ode Records, you know, Lou Adler's label as well. So, um, you know, they they control they oversaw a lot back in those days and especially you know abc paramount you know with uh you know in abc dunhill with the four tops and hamilton joe frank and reynolds but essentially that's what that's what happened with the back label now here's the interesting thing i've been saying this for a while in this episode and you're saying okay gets to the point what's so interesting about the release of the song well the song came out in april of 1965 but it actually didn't make the charts until september October of 1965, but in October 1965, the song didn't go number one. 
it peaked at number two. But sometimes, but here's the thing, is that when you when you say a record peaked at number two, you're always going to wonder what was the song that was stopping them from going number one. What was so? What was the song that was out the same week and literally on the charts at the same time as them that was number one that stopped them from actually going to number one? Well, I can tell you for right now, that song that stopped them from going all the way to number one, and which which the and unfortunately this record stalled at number two, and the reason why they couldn't even get to number one is that that record that was stopping them from going all the way to number one was yesterday by the Beatles. Yep, this is so true. That song came out, I believe, I believe just a few weeks before that song, you know, but it literally stopped the, you know, the, the song from actually getting to number one because that song was out the same week and, you know, Treater Right was number two and Yesterday by the Beatles number one. So that's essentially what happened with this song and that's the reason why this song never went to number one when it first came out. But anyways, uh, after Treater Right came out in uh, April of 65, when it charted like September, October of 65, the band had a couple more hits on the top 40 charts nationally on Billboard. And those included uh, Apple of My Eye and Just a Little Bit. Now, Just a Little Bit is kind of an interesting song because uh, it actually contains a riff that the Beatles literally copy note for note for their original song, uh, Happy Birthday. Uh, the birthday song that everyone knows by the Beatles. They say it's your birthday. Well, yeah, that's they copied that note, the the riff from that song, note for note, originally from that song, uh, just a little bit, which I believe was was in fact a blues, originally a blues R and B song written by a black musician. Uh, Treat Right was an original song written by Roy Head and Gene Kurtz. But as you can imagine, with this particular song, you can see how much of an influence the song would have on other singers that kind of came after them. You know, because here's the thing, you know, this whole I, this whole picture of, you know, Roy Head being this whole R&B blues shouter and being so enthralled with that genre of music, even though he's a white guy, but he was really doing his best to capture the essence of being like a James Brown or uh, Joe uh, or Joe Tex. Um, you know, you can see the other singers very similar to him would capture that which would, would where they would fit that description to a T and they would actually cover the song well just a little just some name dropping for you guys just just so that way you guys know who actually recorded the song covered it after treater right was recorded originally by Roy head I mean just just some names uh Jimmy page recorded the song um Bruce Springsteen recorded it Jerry Lee Lewis recorded it um Bon Jovi recorded it. Uh, Chris Farlow recorded it. Um, Bob Dylan recorded a version of the song. Sammy Davis Jr. recorded a version of the song. And Tom Jones recorded the song. And they actually recorded that song live. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't actually record it. But you know, the song. You know, there's just so many different cover versions of the song. And actually, uh, the the son of Roy Head actually wound up you know being a pretty big contender on American Idol and I believe his name was Sundance so basically uh Sundance who was Roy Head's um son wound up being going being getting through a lot of different rounds in American Idol and almost winning uh you know he you know and that's basically what happened with the son and uh essentially what happened um after the song became a hit is that you know 
another thing that was getting in the way of you know the this band really peaking on more of a national level and having more huge hits is that uh, they essentially uh, they were all working day jobs at the time. Uh, you know they weren't they weren't really full time musicians. So, and they had this one huge hit on the on the pop church, a treat to right, but they really couldn't uh, you know basically uh, you know move past that one major pop song, as you know Apple of My Eye and just a little bit only made the bottom half of the top forty. You know, so essentially, you know, the members of the traits were, were really thinking to themselves, yeah, there's no way we can support ourselves just off of this one big, huge hit song. So we got to think of other ways in which we can make a living. And so because of this, you know, you know, there was a, there was some friction between mem- the, the members of this group and the rest of the other band. And essentially another thing, another interesting thing that happened was that there was actually a lawsuit between uh, Gene Kurtz and Roy Head. Uh, Gene Kurtz actually sued uh, Roy Head, you know, for basically unpaid royalties for this specific song, and but they, but they later, but but those things were later worked out, and they actually did reconcile with each other shortly before Gene Kurtz died of cancer in uh, in 2011, I believe, you know. So that's essentially what happened with this particular band, but you know, it is kind of interesting how a song like this could be some. Because could become so iconic just for the fact that it was used in a huge Quentin Tarantino movie that's been it's almost considered legendary by now even though it's only a year old I mean Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is just huge and it was used in the very opening scene of this movie and it just goes to show you how much of a music fan Quentin Tarantino was to use such an obscure sexy song for this flick but again it was so cool for him to choose this song for that movie that he, that he was producing at the time so actually what happened with the, the the friction that happened between Roy Head and the Traits is that they, like I said before they wanted to, they didn't they really wanted to be original band they did not want to be a nationally successful touring band and uh, they actually signed a partnership with Roy Head and that caused an issue with them because Roy Head wanted to do more things other than just be a regional band, you know, even though the band really only wanted to be a regional group because they all had day jobs at the time. And basically that's what happened is that there was a lawsuit between them and the traits and Roy Head. They actually wanted to do more, uh, you know, Roy Head wanted to do more national things and the traits were only really being interested in being a regional band. They didn't want to go out and tour anywhere else besides Texas. And basically that's the friction that happened between Roy Head and the traits and essentially that's what you know that's what made such a that caused such a problem between them and the rest of the band and uh yeah i don't think it was any it was any it was an issue over royalties but again i think it was a problem with that uh, yeah so that includes part two of episode number 109 of my 60 music podcast millennial throwback machine i'm sam williams and, for the, and if you listened to the song and last week and you really liked it you never heard the song before and you found some really cool interesting facts about last week's artist and song you never really knew anything about them before um please email me at sam let's see will it icloud.com and you can also reach out to me on instagram at iheartolies and check out my new and improved website at samlewismusic.net that has all my that has a lot of my original music on there plus some other cool stuff on there 
as well. Um, the link to that in the description of this week's episode of this podcast. And you can check out the official Spotify and YouTube playlist for this podcast. Where you'll be able to find all the songs I've talked about on my podcast so far, including some ones I've mentioned in interview episodes before. would love if you can check that out. And uh, let me know if, if listening to those inter- is in those playlists gives you any ideas for any kind of songs to talk about next on my podcast. And if you do have any of those ideas, please email those to me at samltwilliacloud.com. Also, um, you can also reach out to me on Instagram at iheartoldies. And please do also check out the official uh, merch store for this podcast. Um, I'm seeing that I haven't uh, I haven't gotten any responses from you guys as far as the trivia question I put out uh, last week. Um, you know, if you guys want some help, you know, f- you know, as far as getting the right answer to that trivia question, let me know and I'll give you some more help. But again, it's within the first ten episodes of my podcast, and you know, I love it if you can check out my merch store. In the meantime, let me know if you think of the merch item, the price of each item in the store. You can do that by emailing me at cmltwilliacloud.com. I understand you might not be able to buy anything because, you know, a lot of people are out of work because of COVID. But I would still appreciate if you can email me and let me know what you think of the store and everything. But yeah, so, um, yeah, and. I'll give you guys a little bit more time to think of the right answer to the trivia question I put out last week. But it's again, it's uh, it's very much. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'll give you one other hint. Um, it's one of the artists I mentioned actually in this week's episode. Um, I mentioned them by name uh, in this week's episode when I talked about one of the artists that covered Roy Hedge Streeter, right? Um, I mentioned that that artist by name, so hopefully that guys will kind of help you jog your memory a little bit. But again, all I have to do is listen to the first ten episodes of my podcast and be, and you'll know the right answer to this question. But yeah, so, um, but again, so if you if the, the main thing is the takeaways about Roy Hedge the band is that they had you know a lot of a lot of life really got in the way with this band. They could have been really really big, but several things got in the way. I mean, they were in high school when they first got together, and they all had day jobs. You know when they when they really had been having huge hit songs and you know they never really could have never really you know had the freedom to do a bunch of other things and have humongous commercial success outside of Treater Wright. You know so again that's the main thing to keep in mind about this band and just they were essentially the first white band from Texas to have horns in them like James Brown you know and basically do that whole James Brown thing except with a bunch of white musicians you know versus black musicians but essentially that's what they were is that they were really trying to go for that that white you know R&B sound you know which is basically like their version of the black R&B sound that James Brown was nailing at the time but anyway so um, I'm Sam Williams and thank you guys for joining me for this week's episode of my podcast the Millennial Throwback Machine until next week Police. Keep